the teams you care about. Mac Jones is good. That's not the question. The question is, is he good enough to win repeatedly in this loaded AFC? The stories that matter to you. If I'm Xander Bogarts, I need three things in order to get over that insulting contract offer. This is your home for New England sports. Jason Tatum, superstar. Book it. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEVAM FM and WDEVRadio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show on a Thursday right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVRadio.com. Short show today. We're up until 6.10. Then at that point, Red Sox look to salvage a game from the Blue Jays in this series after losing a tough one in extras last night. We will talk about the Red Sox at 545 with Tom Karen of Nesson. Talk to him also about the Jimmy Fund telethon, which has now come to an end, but he's been really crushing it in the last couple of days. I have apparently become the bad guy from the eSports Army. We'll talk about that just after 6 o'clock, and you can get in on the Napa-Morrisville-Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. It's your locally-owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. Also, check us out, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and watch us on my Twitter account as well. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber. They are Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Interesting conversation last night on NBC Sports Boston. Patriots insider Tom Curran says that Josh McDaniels, the former Pats offensive coordinator, who's now the head coach in Vegas, who the Patriots are getting ready to play tomorrow in the preseason finale, Tom Curran says that Josh McDaniels probably would have stayed in New England if the Patriots had tried harder to keep him. Well, the interesting thing with Josh is the departure is complicated. In 2018, the Patriots convinced Josh to stay. Bill said that he would show him his world. And then come 2022, with Belichick obviously closer to the end, no move was made to retain Josh McDaniels. No assurance given to him. Really no effort at all to keep him going from the, to the Las Vegas Raiders. And Josh, with five children living in Westwood, certainly hoped to continue working here. And if any effort was made to convince him, I think he would have had a hard time saying no to it. All right, that's an interesting point. It's an interesting conversation. And I don't doubt that with the five kids that staying in New England would have been good for Josh McDaniel's family life. But here's the question. Should the Patriots have made a bigger effort to retain McDaniels? And how should this whole thing have gone down? Because I've thought about this quite a bit since I heard Tom Curran say this. And here is kind of what I think should have happened in order. One, the Patriots should have recognized how valuable McDaniels is to what they do. And they should have recognized how valuable he is to Mac Jones's development. And as a result, I do believe the Patriots should have made Josh McDaniels a good and compelling offer to stay. More money, more long-term security. I would have done both of those things if I were them. Josh McDaniels helps the Patriots win. That is what the Patriots care about. I would have put a premium on that if I were the team, and I would have tried to retain McDaniels. That said, knowing that that offer was out there, if I were Bill Belichick personally, 
I would have told Josh McDaniels to go. The team needed to make an offer. The Belichick would know the offers out there, and he needed to then pull McDaniels into his office and say, hey, you need to take this. That is how this needed to go. I understand Belichick's first allegiance is to the Patriots organization and to the franchise winning, but the NFL is also a business built on relationships. As much as it's about winning, it is also a business built on relationships. Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick had a relationship for 20 years. McDaniels helped bring Belichick unprecedented success, helped bring the organization unprecedented success. Even though Bill Belichick knows that Josh McDaniels leaving would hurt the Patriots, Bill Belichick should have encouraged Josh McDaniels to go. Even if Robert Kraft wanted to pull out all the stops to keep him, as Tom Curran wants, Bill Belichick should have encouraged him to go. Bill Belichick knows that you only get so many chances at this head coach thing. And Bill Belichick had to have known that Josh McDaniel's chances were limited and fleeting. He burned Indy in 2018. He didn't get the Cleveland job or the Carolina job or the Philly job. The opportunities were drying up for Josh McDaniels, and Bill Belichick had to know and had to see that last offseason and the opportunity with the Raiders was McDaniel's last best chance. And he should have looked at McDaniel's and said, look, you can stay here, but if you really want to grow your career, this is an opportunity you can't refuse and you should take it. Some of you are probably laughing at that, but that is true. Coaches, it is a fraternity and they look out for each other and they shouldn't be holding each other back or holding people back from elevating themselves. The Patriots, yes, they should have made an offer, and Belichick, anyways, should have encouraged McDaniels to go. I think about my own career, and it's a slightly different situation that I won't remind you of or bore you with, but basically, I had an offer to come to Vermont, right? I was in Albany. I had an offer to come to Vermont, and I was waiting for and pleading with my employer in Albany to try to keep me. I wanted to stay. I was part-time. I wanted them to make me full-time. I was waiting for them to step up and make me an offer. They came to me without an offer. They said to me, look, you can stay here, and we might be able to negotiate something for you soon. But the smart thing to do is go. They told me it's better for your career to take this opportunity. What they are offering you is what better than we can guarantee you. So I left. It's slightly different. There's slightly different backstories around it. But they ultimately encouraged me out the door, and it was the best thing for my career. I needed to get out. I needed to expand. I needed to grow. I needed to make more money. I needed to see a new place. I needed to learn new things. I needed to work with new people. It was the best situation for me, and they pushed me towards it. Bill Belichick knows that going to Vegas was going to be the best situation for McDaniels, and he should have pushed him towards it as well. And finally, so here's, here's what we've got. Patriots should have made an offer. Bill Belichick should have told McDaniels to go, and McDaniels ultimately should have said yes, as he did. Tom Curran says, oh, he wanted to stay. He would have had a hard time saying no. He should have said no. No matter what, whether the Patriots kicked him out the door, whether the Patriots fired him, or whether they 
threw him the best party ever to try to convince him to stay. Josh McDaniels should have gone. He needed to realize also that this opportunity in Vegas was his last great chance. That is what he needed to realize also. The Raiders were available. They wanted him. I don't know that other jobs like that would have been available. But the Raiders were also a largely good situation. They had a ton of turmoil last year with the Henry Rugg stuff and with John Gruden. But they have an established quarterback. They made the playoffs a year ago. It's a job Josh McDaniels needed to take. I understand Curran wanted the Patriots to step up. But even if they did, McDaniels should have gone. He wanted to be a head coach. The Patriots couldn't provide him that opportunity. He needed to go. He just did. 802-585-3026. Maybe the Patriots were surprised and caught flat-footed by the Raiders' offer to McDaniels. I don't know how, but maybe that's why they were able to un- to uh, unable to land an experienced offensive coaching staff. I don't believe that. I don't think that. I, I don't think they were ever flat-footed. Josh McDaniels has interviewed for jobs for the last several years. They know that that is what he does. He hadn't taken any yet or gotten any, but Josh McDaniels does that. He interviews for jobs, so I don't think they could be flat-footed. Nick and Alberg, way up there. What if the Patriots offered McDaniels the head coach in waiting position? I mean, I, I, I don't believe the Patriots shouldn't have done I, I don't think they should have done that. You never know what's going to happen in a few years. How do you know Bill Belichick doesn't stay for a decade longer? And in that time, McDaniels falls out of favor or and you don't end up wanting him. So you've promised him the job and he ends up being a guy that you don't like anymore. What if he and Mac Jones have a falling out? That's a risky game to play. And from McDaniels standpoint, I wouldn't want that either because that doesn't do anything for me right now. Josh McDaniels wanted to be a head coach. How does he know that? Bill Belichick's not going to stick it out for a decade, and he's not going to get that chance. I mean, look, Jim Beheim has had a coach in waiting for he had a coach in waiting for years, and Mike Hopkins at Syracuse, and Beheim is still there, and Hopkins ultimately left and went to the University of Washington. Coaches in waiting don't necessarily work out. Will in St. George, why do you think Belichick needs to help McDaniel's career? The only thing he needs to do is protect the Patriots. Yeah, I kind of said that above. I get that. It is a fair point. Belichick's obligation is to the Pats. But, again, coaching is a fraternity. And there's also a sense of obligation in helping guys advance. How many guys, how many times has Bill Belichick called him in somebody's reference, right? He's, you're not supposed to hold back guys from advancing. And that's what this is. This is an advancement by Josh McDaniels. So, Tom Curran says Pat should have stepped up. Yeah, they should have. But this is how it should have played out anyways. McDaniels made the right call. I don't know if Belichick ever talked to him about it. I don't know if Belichick encouraged him. He should have encouraged him because you can't hold back your guys. you got to let them go and accomplish things that they want to accomplish. And Josh McDaniels wanted another chance to be a head coach. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Mark in Essex yesterday said he wanted to hear football. Hopefully, Mark and Essex is happy about our opening segment there. Esports has everybody mad at me. I'll tell you about that just after 6 o'clock. But the Red Sox have me mad at them. We're going to talk about the Red Sox next. 
and the Jimmy Fund Telethon with our guy Tom Cairn of Nesson. He'll be with us next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. Looking for the latest information on the Red Sox? Not only is David Ortiz a Hall of Famer, but he is one of the best of the best. How about the Bruins? Are they a Stanley Cup champion? Probably not as presently constructed, but they're a playoff team. And you've come to the right place. We talk now with Nesson insider Tom Karen. Baseball isn't boring because there's still nothing like the communal gathering of fans at a baseball game. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on this Thursday. Red Sox baseball comes up about 25 minutes from now. Sox looking to salvage here against the Blue Jays, losing a tough one last night in extra innings. Joining us now in advance of the pregame show is our Red Sox insider, Tom Karen of Nesson, TC. How are you? Doing well, Brady. How are you doing? Excellent. Uh, before we get to the team itself, let's start with the Jimmy Fund. Nesson and WEI have been having the telephone telethon the last couple of days. It's been widely successful. At last check last night, I knew it was over $3 million. I'm sure it has ballooned well more than that in the last 24 hours. Uh, kind of what have the last two days been like for you? What's it like every year for you around this time? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the day after uh, the, the two-day uh, telethon is always a little bit of a, uh, you're in a fog, because it's just, uh, it's an incredible couple of days that everybody at Nesson and WEI comes together on long days for a lot of people. You know, I, I started at noon uh, doing uh, coverage yesterday on air, and, and we wrapped it up uh, at midnight or so, a little after midnight. I uh, did that two days in a row. So, uh, and, and you're just overwhelmed by the stories and the spirit of the thing. Um, you know, I said last night, we could come on and ask people for money. Uh, but what really moves the needle is is the people coming on who are dealing with, uh, you know, whether their their own personal cancer fight, or a family that's that's dealing with a, a two or three or four year old child who's been diagnosed with cancer, which is just unfathomable. Uh, and and they come on every year. Uh, some of them come back year after year. Families of of some children we've lost over the twenty years come back, and I you can only imagine how painful that is. But they all do it because they understand the money is what's changing the game. Um, I've been involved in all of these, so we've been doing it for 20 years. I've done more of them than anybody, I guess, now at this point. And, you know, the stuff we're talking about now would have been science fiction 20 years ago when we began this. We're talking about isolating mutated genes and being able to see if your children have that same mutation and, and will be predisposed. I mean, they're starting to talk now about there may be ultimately genetic screening uh, in the not-too-distant future that we'll all be able to get just to see if we are predisposed to any specific cancers, and then you can start preventing cancers rather than just treating them. So uh, it's an incredible thing. Uh, over 3.5 million last I checked, though I haven't seen the, the final updated numbers uh, I think that we're close to $65 million raised in the 20 years of this thing. Um, so it's really incredible. And, and again, you know, on, on a night when the Red Sox didn't play very well for a couple of games, uh, it, it is a reminder that the platform and the willingness of these players uh, to be a part of this, uh, it, that's what makes it all work. Because if, if the Red Sox weren't banging the drum and weren't getting their fans involved, uh, we wouldn't raise that kind of money. You know, Buster only we had on yesterday, and he's been around the Red Sox a couple weekends in a row between Sunday Night Baseball at the Yankees a couple weeks ago and then at the Little League Classic. And he said the attitude around the team, he feels they're kind of resigned to what's happening on the field this year and kind of the fate of this season. And obviously we're at two very different extremes, but between the Little League Classic 
and the Jimmy Fund and how the players have rallied behind that. I got to imagine it's been nice to, to see kind of a different energy around the team. Yeah, you know, I asked Santa Bogart that yesterday, and and he was very upfront with uh, the the fact that they kind of needed something like that. They really needed uh, to you know to get out of the grind, to get their heads uh, up, and you know he's at Williamsport for him especially because you know he'd come within one win away of going to the Little League World Series as a player twice. Uh, beaten by those big Curacao teams uh, both times, and and so you know for him to to to, to hear a young kid say you're my favorite player, uh, and and he was talking about being a kid meeting Andrew Jones uh, who played for those Curacao teams, and 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 you know how he will never forget Andrew Jones taking some time to talk to him, and and you know I was talking to him while he was talking to some patients yesterday, some kids there for the Jerry Fund. He goes, you know, and, and he said it with complete humility. He said, these kids will remember this for the rest of their lives. How do you not go spend a little time? And, and you know, he's banged up now. He had the back spasms on Tuesday, couldn't play last night. He said it'll only be a day or two. But, it, you know, there's a lot of baseball left. There's 38 games. It's half a hockey season, half a basketball season. And we say, well, the season's almost over. But these guys got to go out there and do this uh, another three dozen times. Uh, and, and, you know, Buster's right. I Resign's a good word, I, I, but I think the resignation isn't that they're a bad team. It's that they just don't have the horses. You know, you, you've had you got Cutter Crawford going tonight after Brian Bayo last night, after Josh Winkowski the night before. Uh, you had Bobby Dahlbeck playing shortstop for the first time as a starter in his major league career last night with with Franchi Cordero at first base. Uh, it, it's not how you drew any of this up, uh, and injuries are part of it. Uh, but but you know lack of depth is part of it. You know they uh, they they didn't do enough. We now know uh, this off season to to prop this up and and to try to build on uh, an incredible run uh, within two games of a World Series last year. Uh, and so this is where they are. You know the injuries have mounted and and the lack of depth has become prevalent and 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 obvious. And and, and you know there's seven games out with six weeks left. We're talking with Tom Caron, our Red Sox insider at Neston here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. I'm at the point of the season where it's all about paying attention to things that are going to affect you in the future. So I don't care as much how Kike Hernandez plays for the last six weeks right now. I, I don't care as much how Rich Hill pitches for the last six weeks. I do care about how Cutter Crawford and Brian Bayo pitch. And Bayo pitched well yesterday, his best start. Do you think that these guys are part of the rotation next year with Pavetta and hopefully Sale, or are we looking at looking to need to sign four starters or something in the off season? No, I not four. Uh, I would because yeah, we just talked about depth, and I would certainly like to see them uh, add to that depth. But I, you know, one of the interesting idea questions here is where James Paxton's going to fit into this. They really thought. You know, I thought they'd get to see him here before the end of the year, so at least you'd have a little bit of a uh, a baseline to work on. They've got a two-year option, thirteen million a year, so twenty-six million dollars they have to commit to. And I assume they want to bring him back. Uh, you didn't pay him; they paid him essentially ten million this year, six million plus. He's got four million uh, as a player option if he if he wants. Uh, so I. I you know, so if he's back, and you're assuming now that Sale and Paxton are back at the top, right? And then Pavetta, uh, and then I think Bayo is a starter on this team next year. I think Cutter Crawford's a starter on this team next year, but I, I don't think that five is enough. 
I, I think you got to try to bring Michael Walker back <clears throat> when healthy. He was their best pitcher this year, and he's been healthy most of the year. It was really that one stint. So, I, but what will he make? <clears throat> you know, it was a good one-year deal this year. I assume he's going to sign himself a, a, a nice, bigger deal this year. But you know, we, we know they like those kind of signings. Garrett Richards last year, Rich Hill, Michael Walker this year. They haven't all hit. Uh, but certainly Waka did. So that's kind of a middle of the rotation type guy. And I think, you know, you need to get somebody like that. But I, I don't think you're that far away in the starting rotation. I, I, it's the bullpen you're going to have to spend some money on. I'd like to see them go get a closer. And then you'll have Whitlock and Houck. Uh, I You know, you got to love what you've seen from John Schreiber. Uh, you'll have uh, uh, Strom back as a lefty. But, but you need a couple of arms to really complement that group. Can you pay Whitlock $40 million to be a setup guy? Like, I mean, all along I thought he was going to be a starter next year because he's making starter money. If he's not a starter, then I feel like he's making elite closer money. Can he really be an eighth-inning guy at $40 million? Yeah, I don't know that he'll be an eighth-inning guy. You know, there's a new – we're in a new world of baseball. It's almost a hybrid, you know, where where you're going to use him to piggyback on a four- or five-inning starter guy. Uh, I think eventually he will be a starter. I'm not 100% sure it will be next year just because of the setbacks and the injuries this year. I still think you got to be a little careful with the guy. Uh, I also think the makeup of the bullpen will dictate that. In part, they needed him in the bullpen this year because the bullpen was a mess without him. Uh, and, and so to your point, you're spending that kind of money for a reliever. Well, if you put him in the rotation, you're going to spend that kind of money to replace him in the bullpen. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, but right now, you know, I, I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, but right now, I, I, it'd be tough to come back with with – Cutter Crawford and Brian Bale and Garrett Whitlock all as uh, part of the five-man rotation because that's a lot of uncertainty there. You know, I, I mentioned this to Buster yesterday, and I'm going to keep banging the drum for it. I've seen the articles. I've listened to the commentary. People think that this franchise is destined for the seller for the next five years or so. Yeah. They're going to have anywhere between 100 and $130 million to spend just next offseason. The schedule gets easier in that you, you're playing 52 games against your division instead of 76. I think all of these are reasons for optimism. I think, look, I saw the White Sox be awful and turn it around in one offseason. I've seen the Padres turn it around. Even my Mariners went and saved up all their piggy bank chips for one year here and went got Robbie Ray it can be done and I think I expect that the Red Sox will do it I think they can be right back in the thick of things next year yeah I can't imagine that they don't react to this year and and they they basically always have right whether it's 2012 when they shipped everybody off to LA and and retooled it with short-term free agents to bridge them to the young guys and they won a world series or whether it was 2000 uh, what 15 uh, after that they wound up uh, bringing in Dombrowski uh, a year later bringing in Alex Cora you know really changing I mean this ownership group has shown they won't sit around and wait for a long rebuild. You can make the argument. Now let's play, and, and it's hard to be optimistic right now, but let's be optimistic for a moment, okay? Uh, we were sitting around, Will Millbrooks and I were sitting around sort of mapping out the future. And if you, now this is a big if, but if you wanted to just say you're going to build this around Bogart's endeavors, and I talked to Bogart's last night, he didn't sound, you know, when I said, they're going to, they say they want to talk to you after the season, is that on the table? And his first day, words were, well, after the season, anything can happen. That doesn't tell me that uh, that he's uh, running to the Red Sox front office to begin his offseason negotiations. But let's say you did it. Let's say whatever it takes. I've given five years and 125 with a six-year vesting off. Does that get done? I don't know. 
but maybe it does. And and then you have to overpay Devers to whatever Devers is going to want. Okay, but if you did that and you had Devers and Bogarts, Story and Hosmer as your infield, you're not bad with with Cassis behind Hosmer learning the craft and with Arroyo as your utility guy. Uh, if you do that, I bring back Tommy Pham in left field. I bring back uh, uh, Alex Verdugo in right field. Rob Snyder as my fourth. Now, the question is two positions I didn't get to. I think you need to go get a catcher and then identify which one of these two is going to be your backup. Probably going to be McGuire. He's been hitting real well, and he's controllable for a while. And then you got to make the tough decision. Is Jaron Duran your center fielder? I don't think he is. If that's the case, you're going to have to go get a center fielder. But you've got the money to do that, as you said. So you get a center fielder, you get a catcher, then you go get one middle of the, uh, the rotation starter, a closer, and one more reliever. You can do all of that for $80, $90 million and get yourself a little bit of money to do something at the trade deadline. If you do all that health permitting, I think you're back in this next year. The easier schedule, uh, as you pointed out, um, I, I don't think they're that far away. But if you don't bring back Bogarts, then you're opening up the door to losing Devers as well, and then you got to start to wonder where this is going to go. So the next six months will tell you everything. Tom Karen, Red Sox insider over at Nesson TC. We appreciate you. Great work by Nesson and WEI on the Jimmy Fund. Uh, how can we donate? Give us the uh, the links that we can continue to donate. JimmyFund.org at this point is the easiest way. I think they've taken down the phone banks. Operators are no longer standing by. Uh, <laughs> but uh, JimmyFund.org is where you can always give. And uh, you can uh, see some of the highlights of all this and, and hear some of the stories. Uh, anybody who hasn't been there. Uh, it is uh, an amazing place because one end of the building, they're researching and coming up with uh, cutting edge treatments. The other end of the building, they're putting those into practice with patients. Uh, it's the greatest place in the world uh, for, for cancer research and cancer care and every penny helps. So JimmyFund.org is the best place to go. TC, enjoy the game tonight. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Appreciate it, Brady. Absolutely. Tom Karen, Sox Insider over at Nesson. We will have the uh, Red Sox game for you in just uh, about 11 minutes from now. I got a ton to react to from TC. Probably more likely going to get to it tomorrow because of our limited time today. I was wrong, and I looked it up as TC was talking. Garrett Whitlock's contract is really about $19 million. It goes up to 40, varying, you know, factoring in a bunch of different things. So kind of could talk about his role, but the money is not quite as extensive as I said. So uh, we will react to TC probably tomorrow. Right now we'll get the national news update from CBS News. And I'll tell you how I've apparently become public enemy number one for the eSports fans in the uh, state of Vermont. I'll re-clarify my position for everyone so I can get off being target number one from the eSports army. We'll get the national news update. We'll talk about eSports next on DEV. 96. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEV Radio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM. We'll get Red Sox lineups for you in about six minutes. But I've got to respond to the people on social media who are really, really angry at me, apparently. So let's just backtrack here for a second. Last week, or actually maybe it was even on Monday at this point, I don't remember. But a story came out from VT Digger that the VPA is thinking of adding eSports, competitive video gaming, to its high school sports offerings in the state of Vermont, okay? eSports possibly on the ledger to be added to the state's uh, you know, athletic calendar. I said that I was okay with eSports becoming a sanctioned high school sport 
but I wanted to place caveats on it. I said, no mandatory practice, especially for those who are playing another sport at the same time. And I said competitions only on Sunday. And the reason I said that is because I don't want competitive video gaming to get in the way of the numbers of, quote, traditional sports. It seems pretty reasonable to me, but a lot of people came down to me on Twitter and said, how dare you prioritize football or soccer or baseball or whatever over what a kid wants to do and a kid should be allowed to do whatever they want to do and all that. Then I was told that my plan was unrealistic. I got to say, I'm pretty surprised at the outrage here against me because number one, I said, I believe esports should exist, can exist as a high school sport in Vermont. I'm not trying to put the kibosh on this. Second, I said, I understand that having esports as a sport will allow more opportunities for more kids to be involved in something. There might be kids that are not involved in any school activity. Esports gives them another chance to get involved. It will help bring about more socialization for kids. I acknowledge that as good things about doing this. So there's another benefit that I gave to it. And three, I think it's also fair to recognize that if you add esports, there's a chance you could hurt your other sports offerings. If a kid chooses to play esports over soccer or football, then that is bad for his school's overall, you know, potential ability to field those quote traditional sports teams. I am trying to prevent that. Here, here is the deal. Let's just say if esports is made into a fall sport, I am trying to avoid the scenario where a kid at 16 years old says, hey, I'm not playing football this year. I'm going to play esports instead. And now the school can't field a football team or, hey, I'm, tr I'm not going to play girls soccer this year because I'm going to play esports. I'm trying to avoid schools being hurt by adding esports to the calendar. And I'm also trying to help a kid be able to do two things. If you have eSports as a fall sport, then I'm more than fine with you playing that and football. But I want football to be the thing that comes first. I'm not trying to prohibit you from doing both things. I'm trying to figure out a way so that you can do both things and that the school can still field their professional or I'm sorry, still field their traditional sports roster. I'm not trying to hurt esports. I'm trying to help the school. I'm trying to help the kids. And I'm trying to allow you to do both rather than have to choose. And everybody's getting mad at me about this. Well, I got news for you. Bass fishing is a sanctioned VPA sport, right? It was added a couple of years ago. There are plenty of kids that play a fall sport and do bass fishing. They do both. What does the state require you to do? The state requires you to name a primary sport. And when you have a conflict between your primary sport and your secondary sport, you are required to choose your primary sport. So if a kid plays football and bass fishing and competition is on Sunday for bass fishing and they've got a makeup game, they're going to their primary. Day. Like I, th That's all I'm asking for. Now, in my world, the traditional sport would be the primary sport. But if a kid really wants to make video gaming their, their primary sport, then go ahead. But when a kid chooses primary sport video gaming over football and never shows up to football practice, that kid won't be getting any time in football. If that's okay with them, then so be it. But I, I don't think I'm way out of line here.
bass fishing is already the, the template. You have a primary sport. You have a secondary sport going on concurrently at the same time. That's all I'm asking for here. I just want the traditional sport to be the primary sport. If a kid really wants video gaming to be the primary, then fine. But they're going to hurt. They they're going to really hurt their standing on their traditional sports team. But I don't get why I am the bad guy here for wanting traditional sports to stay in vogue in the state. Come, video gaming can be a high school sport all they want, and you can go to practice whenever you're free. But I, I, I don't want to see the death of bat and ball sports because we've added competitive video gaming. So one of the administrators around the state is going to come on tomorrow and talk talk me through this, and maybe they'll tell me why I'm wrong because I'm not seeing it. <laughs> Blue Jays 67 and 55, Red Sox 60 and 54. Kevin Gosman against Cutter Crawford's the pitching matchup. George Springer, the DH, Vlad Jr. at first. Lourdes Goriel in left, Teoscar Hernandez in right. Bo Bichette at shortstop for the Jays, Matt Chapman at third. Rymel Tapia in center, Santiago Espinals in second. Danny Jansen is the catcher. For the Sox, Tommy Pham is back. He's in the left. Rafael Devers is at third. J.D. Martinez is the DH. Xander Bogarts is back. He's at short. Christian Arroyo back at second. Rob Refsnyder in right. Reese McGuire, the catcher. Bobby Dahlbeck at first. Not shortstop. And Jaron Duran is in center. That's going to do it for us here on the Freddie Farkas Show. Check out the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Tom Karen of Nessence full interview will be there as well. Appreciate TC stopping by. More esports talk and people telling me I'm wrong. That's coming up tomorrow. Red Sox baseball is next on the EV. <laughs>